Alright, so let's start out with a word of prayer before we begin. Dear Jesus, we thank you very much for being with us and watching over us and during this time. We ask for your help to be wise and to be careful with what we're doing. We thank you very much for the blessings that we have. And we ask, Lord, that you would guide us and direct us, help us. May your spirit be with us this night. Help us to know what it is that uh, you want us to learn from this series. And we just thank you very much for the blessings we have. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, we're in the book of Zechariah to finish up. Uh, he is one of the Old Testament prophets, called a minor prophet, but he's had quite a bit to say about Christ, the root, uh, the offspring of David. He's had talked about the shepherd. He's talked about several different things, uh, and uh, he's talked about particularly Judah and how it's been destroyed, Jerusalem, all sorts of things uh, along the way. The temple that's been being rebuilt in Judah um, during the time of Zerubbabel and uh, Nehemiah, that, that type era when he's there. Uh, and they're rebuilding the temple. They've come out of their slavery and uh, they're allowed to go back to their own home country and start to rebuild their country, their homes. The, Nehemiah builds the wall uh, and the temple, and so they're finishing up. But this, and we've seen some of that happen through there, but this last section of Zechariah really has a very different flavor to it than all the other sections in the past. Um, it's got a lot of stuff talking about the future and the end times. And if there ever was a time when it's interesting to see, uh, today is that time. We don't know the day or the hour. And the Bible says no man knows the day or the hour. Not even Christ himself knows the day or the hour. God the Father has reserved that one particular thing for himself. And when he says... This is the time. Christ has limited his knowledge in that, uh, chosen to limit himself in that, and because of that, one day Christ will come back. Well, we're going to talk about that tonight in the book of Zechariah, and it's got a lot of very interesting things to say. There's a little bit of uh, look back and a little bit of what you'll see where Christ referred to uh, one specific spot in here um, about Christ's life that was referred to. But we're going to do chapters 12 and 13 and 14, and we're going to do a synopsis. Zechariah 12, 13, and 14. Uh, we'll do a synopsis of, of the whole thing. We'll put it together. We'll pick some verses out. We'll try to put together a picture of what's going on. We won't read the entire thing uh, for the sake of time tonight, uh, but we will be definitely working on this, these last three and finish up the book tonight. So... <clears throat> When we begin this book, we're going to see, as we have seen uh, from the beginning of this book, we, we talked about the persecution of 
Jerusalem and of also the same of Judah. Okay? Judah and Jerusalem are persecuted. All of Israel really is persecuted. But he says, now, though these things happen, God says, Jerusalem is the apple of my eye. Okay? Jerusalem is that beloved of me. Okay? I, I love Jerusalem. And that is evident in the fact that from the beginning, when God had Jerusalem put together, essentially, and of course it becomes its very grandest during the time uh, when King Solomon is there, builds a big grand temple, gets destroyed, he rebuilds the temple uh, later on, which is where we're talking about, and again that gets destroyed. God protects Jerusalem even through all these times when there's battles and fighting, when there's armies and military all around them. Um, we've seen this a great deal of time uh, in Israel's history as they've had battles and they've had struggles. So Jesus has protected Jerusalem because he says, that's mine. And what we'll see is at the end times, Jerusalem plays a big part. We're going to see about that. Tonight, um, in choir, we've sung before, and we sang this past Easter, uh, we sang this song about Jerusalem, the holy city, it's called. And it talks about the holy city in olden times when Jesus rides through on the foal of a donkey, okay? And he rides through, and it's on Palm Sunday, the grand entrance that he has, um, and that's talked about. The original older Jerusalem, okay? That's talked about as Christ rides in meek and lowly riding on a donkey, okay? He, but it's also talked about in here with Jerusalem in the end times where Christ rebuilds the final Jerusalem here on this earth and before the whole world is turned upside down and destroyed and... Um, and remade by God. God seems to have this plan for Jerusalem in every step of the way. So it is his beloved. It is what he chooses to make. And in Revelation, when he builds the new heaven and the new earth, there seems to be this city of Jerusalem that is as high as it is wide, reaching to heaven, makes some sort of connection. It is the point in which uh, the dimensions come together almost, uh, in, in a way, and God uses that as the place to disseminate the connection between heaven and earth in the new world, okay? So there's a lot of stuff that goes on in, in the end, and that's talked about in the book of Revelation, but we will see in the book of Zechariah that we also have some things uh, that are going on, some interesting things tonight. So let's go, as we look as the intensity of the end times increases, we're going to see something that happens in chapter 12, verse number 1, to begin with. 
Chapter 12 of Zechariah, verse number 1. The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretcheth forth the heavens, and layeth the foundation of the earth, and formeth the spirit of man within him. So Zechariah, we get to this last three chapters, and Zechariah says he has something, a new burden. Now, if you recall, Zechariah had several different things happen to them. He seemed like he had a vision after vision after vision, right? And when he began, it says, well, and he looked up, and there's another vision. All along, he's been having these visions. But this seems to be something a little bit unique because he calls it a burden, a new burden. It is a difficult thing. It is not without great effort that someone who knows God and gets a message from God uh, is able to disseminate that message out to people. Okay, It takes effort and energy, and oftentimes the messages gotten from, from the Lord are not full of wonder and, and uh, amazing things that people are going to love. Many times there are things that are going to be destruction of places, hardships on places, and things like that. And that's what prophets have to do. So this is a burden for him to carry this message to people. Not because he doesn't love the people, but because the message is difficult, at least in the very beginning. It's a very difficult message. So, Israel and Judah and Jerusalem. What's that difficult message? Well, it's all back about Israel, Judah, which is the southern, particularly southern part of of Israel, and within Judah is Jerusalem, the city, the capital city of Jerusalem, of Judah. Okay? They are going to undergo great stress. They're going to suffer. They're going to suffer. They're going to have a very difficult time at the end times. We're going to see a little bit of that. But in the final piece of it, what comes out of it is shining and magnificent. Shining and magnificent. It's going to come forth as gold out of this process. But the process is going to be difficult. Verse number 2 and 3. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all people around about, when they shall be in siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people, and all burden themselves. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut into pieces, though all the people of the earth shall be gathered together against it. So we have a couple of things. God says that Jerusalem is going to be two different things. Uh, Number one thing is he's going to be a cup of trembling. A cup of trembling. And number two thing is he's going to be a burdensome stone. 
burdensome stone. A cup of trembling and a burdensome stone. Meaning that everybody that goes and lays siege or attacks or surrounds or does anything against Jerusalem is going to have their own cup their own portion filled up with fear and trembling. And when they do that same thing to Judah or Jerusalem, they are going to have great burdens. It's like they're going to be carrying a huge load by just trying to take this little tiny uh, town out of earth. Okay, They're trying to destroy it. They're trying to get rid of it. And they're going to be a burdensome stone, a cup of trembling. And you say, well, I thought that was a bad, there was supposed to be bad news for Jerusalem. Well, the bad news for Jerusalem is that there's going to be armies. There's going to be military. There's going to be enemies attacking them, laying siege to them. They are going to have a total siege laid of the city. Okay, and maybe even the country. Okay, the country is surrounded by all the armies, their enemies. So that's what the end times looks like for the city of Jerusalem. And we've seen tensions today within the city of Jerusalem hundreds and thousands of times. They seem like they always are having fights and struggles. The armies surround them. The armies do things against them. They're having to fight back enemies. They're having to do things like that. And so God says, well, they're going to be difficult to do anything to. But people are going to do it anyways. They're going to go around them. And because of that... It says that burdensome stone, when they go up against them, they're going to be cut to pieces. But the problem is that they're going to have, they're going to continually go up against them. Now, why do people go up against Jerusalem? Well, because it is Christ's beloved city. It is God's, the apple of his eye. And because it's the apple of his eye and it's his beloved city, Satan hates it. Satan wants everything destroyed through it. Alright? The greatest event in all of mankind's history ever to happen, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, happened in the city of Jerusalem. God marks that so that people may always know and remember what happened here. Alright? And Satan hates that. Because, of course, that brings about opportunity for salvation. And so Satan battles and fights and battles and fights against it, trying to bring all that he can against Jerusalem. All right? Verse number four. And that day, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment and his rider with madness. I will open mine eyes upon the house of Judah and will smite every horse of the people with blindness. Okay? So this is particularly talking about in that day. They start to use the phrase, in that day. In that day. So this is the last times. This is the end piece. The last few whatever length of time in Jerusalem's history. 
in Israel's history. In that day, they're going to be a burden. In that day, something else is going to happen. So what happens? In that day, he's going to smite their horses with astonishment and their riders with madness. People that go up against Jerusalem will start to get a little crazy. Really. Their horses will lose their minds. And so will the enemies. The enemies will lose their minds. Alright? God's going to begin to work directly on those enemies. Those people that stand up against Jerusalem. We're going to skip down to verse number 10. We see, and that's the, the next few verses, they talk about that. They talk about in that day, the end, what's going to happen. There's going to be persecution. All right. We're going to skip down to verse number 10. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And shall be in the bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness of his firstborn son. Alright? So, here's what happens in the very end times. During all of this persecution, there's a change in Israel. Now, Israel, for a very long time, since the day of Christ has come, has had a majority of people that are looking for the Messiah. Jesus Christ came, and people were looking for the Messiah since Zechariah's day. People were looking for the Messiah since the day of Adam and Eve, when God said there will be a hero born, okay? Looking for this promised Messiah. And along came Jesus Christ, and a very small percentage of the Jewish population accepted Him as Messiah. We have a few names of people. We have the disciples. We have a few thousand followers in Jerusalem. And we have a few people like Nicodemus Okay, and people like uh, Joseph of Arimathea, very few that said, you are the Messiah, and accept him. All right? The majority of the rest of the Jews rejected him. And so, under God's great plan, those few Jewish people that did accept him were spread around the world and began to tell the, the Gentiles, or everybody else but the Jews, all about Jesus. All right? And so all of the Gentiles, they begin to know Christ. They begin to know Christ. They know Him as their Savior. Okay? They understand he's the Jewish Messiah. And many, many people in the Gentiles world, in the non-Jewish world, accept Jesus Christ. And so from that, we get generations and generations of churches 
places that pull people in and say, look, this is the Messiah. The Christian church spreads around all the world for over 2,000 years to this point. All around the world, 2,000 years, that Christian church has spread around the world. And the Jews still have not accepted him as their whole. Now it said something interesting there. In this end time, after during this last final days of really intense judgment, of really intense burdens and suffering on Judah, Jerusalem, they will all of a sudden see Christ. What the Gentiles have been blessed and allowed to see for some time, the Jews will see Jesus for who he is. It says specifically, they will look upon whom they have pierced. Now it is said... In the scripture, if you go and you look at some of the accounts of Christ on the cross, they specifically call out this verse. After Christ is killed on the cross, they take a spear and they pierce up through his side, up into his heart, and out flows blood and water. When that happens... They called this verse out and said, It is said they will look upon him whom they have pierced. Alright? Now, God has woven together history. And someday, when this is happening, the Jews all of a sudden will have a revival, for lack of a better word. A change, a vision, a sight of who Jesus really is. And these Jewish people will all of a sudden begin to understand. We killed him. We are guilty. And they will mourn. It will bring about mourning. There will be sorrow. They will understand that they have lost and missed the biggest thing they were looking for. They were looking for the Messiah and had been for thousands of years and all of a sudden the Messiah came and he went and they missed him again 2,000 years up till now. And we don't know when this will happen. We know at the end of times and it seems like we've been seeing shadows of the end of times but again, no man knows the day or hour. Could be a long time from now. It could be a very short time from now. We just don't know. But we know that the Jews will begin to see Jesus. And when a Jew accepts Jesus as his Savior, or as his Messiah, they, they call that a Messianic Jew. That is the same thing as what we call a Christian or a child of God. He's a Messianic Jew because he accepts his Messiah and he becomes a Messianic Jew because he's found the Messiah he's been looking for. That promise from God through the ages. So this is the beginning of what is a tough time and a sad time, but God uses it to begin to see and understand. The Jews begin to see and understand. Now there are Messianic Jews today. 
But there will be a big wave coming at the end of time. A big wave in the last final days. And it'll be something where you see that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay? So, once that great revelation happens, well then what do they do with it? They're sad, they're sorrowful, they're mourning. And it talks about how the families mourn and separate and mourn. It will be sad. Now, chapter number 13, on the last day. Okay, again, we're going to have the phrase that starts out, in that day. Talking the last day. Chapter 13, verse 1. In that day, there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Not only now are they going to mourn, but it says there's going to be a fountain wide open. Burst wide open. Now we know that fountain of Christ's forgiveness. And they will know it too on that day. They will see it and understand it. They will feel what forgiveness is. And they will be free. And God will change and take that last group of Jews and say... You will turn and know me. And a great number of them will turn and know Christ all of a sudden. And when that happens in that day, on the last days, verse 2, chapter 13, it shall come to pass in that day, said the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land. They shall be no more remembered. And also, I will cause the spirits and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. So, there have been, for as long as there have been prophets, there have been false prophets. Okay? There have been people telling other ways other than Christ. People telling other messages other than what God has given. All right, false prophets. And he says, in that day, when the Jews begin to see that, I will take and I will scrape out, stop, and take all these prophets that are false out of Jerusalem. No one's going to listen to them anymore. The people that have been drawing people away from Christ, he's going to stop them in Jerusalem. He's going to shut off that valve and stop them. Okay? So that's going to be another symbol of what happens on that day. Skip down to verse number 6. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thy hands? Then he shall answer, Thou with which I was wounded, and those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. They will see Jesus. And we don't know exactly how, except we know the very last day He will show up. He will be there for the final battle. Okay, And when they see Him, they will see His great stature, and they will see His power and His might, and, and a crown, a, a head full of crowns. And his, his whole uh, vesture, his whole clothing dipped in blood because it, it is uh, his mark. 
but they will look at his hands and they will notice because they are going to be open and the wounds will be there. The wounds where you can see where they have put the nails through his hands. And it says they will look at him and say, where did you get those? I received these in the house of my friends. Where's the house of his friends? Where did he call Judas his friend? The betrayers, the people that turned him in, the people that watched him walk away and put him on the cross, the people that condemned him to death, the people that nailed him to that cross, the people that crucified him, the people that scoffed him and mocked him, even his friends. Is I received these in the house of my friends. In other words, I came to help my friends. And what I got in return was betrayal. But I am giving you forgiveness, even though you betrayed me. And they'll marvel at that as we should marvel at Christ's forgiveness, even though they went after Him and did things specifically to hurt Him. The forgiveness is something that only comes from God. That depth of love and forgiveness only comes from God. And so He says, they will look in my hands, and where did they come from? This came from the house of my friends. It should cut us deeply inside for us to think about that. How often we have even betrayed Christ, even ourselves, even if we know Him and love Him. We have often done the wrong thing, said the wrong thing, cared so little. And we struggle as humans with that. Christ has known that and says, I've received these, these wounds in the house of my friends. And for these wounds... I give forgiveness. That's what I give back to my friends. Verse number 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. It says, take the sword. You're going to go against my shepherd. And against that man that is my fellow. Against my friend. Saith the Lord of hosts, smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. There it is. Talking again. What has happened to Christ? Well, He came to forgive. He came to do these things. And in order to do it, He had to smite or strike down the shepherd. Allow the shepherd to be struck down. And when Christ Jesus was struck down or or smitten... Okay, when he was struck down, all of his sheep, all of his disciples, all of his best friends, they were gone. They ran away. They were scared. The sheep were scattered. It says that, this very verse, it uses as a reference to say, smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So, understanding that Jesus Christ not only played that role then, Jesus Christ's 
uh, role as the shepherd, his role as the one whom they pierced, his role with the one with the wounds in his hands will be just as important in that day as it is today. Just as important in that day as it was when Jesus died. Because he will speak through his wounds. He will speak through those people that understand he was taken down and smitten in the house of his friends. And I call you friend. And I offer forgiveness for all that's been done to me. Offer forgiveness, free and clear. And so the Jews will turn as they understand. They go from mourning to this open fountain of forgiveness like we have an opportunity for. Today, we live in that opportunity. Those opportunities will not always be. Once we have decided and turned our backs, walked away from God, someday will be the opportunity where, whether by death or by Christ's coming, your opportunities will stop. But the Jews get their final opportunities here, and many turn back. It says he will turn his hands against the small ones. In order, when I said a great number will turn to God, it appears, although we don't know exactly the number, it appears that about one-third of the people of Jerusalem will turn to Christ. Two-thirds will still reject him. It talks about one-third and two-thirds in the passage as we look. One-third will be left. We think that those are the ones who have accepted Christ. Okay. Again, prophecy doesn't always fill in every little blank, but it's what we're looking at uh, as we see prophecy says one-third will be left. And they will be taken and they will be refined and made pure. They will accept Christ. They will know Him. So about one-third of the people in Jerusalem will turn to Christ, will have and receive forgiveness. And God wants to make sure every person possible will have that chance. He wants to go back to His beloved and give them one more chance. And many will accept. And many will reject at that point. And so that's, as we finish up uh, chapter 13, then we move on to chapter 14. Chapter 13 talks about that, where the one-third and two-thirds are taken. Uh, Two-thirds will will be gone. And the one-third will be left of the Jews, and they will be be heated up, go under uh, suffering, go under persecution, and melt it just like... Gold is taken and melted down and you remove all of the impurities off the top by melting gold down, putting it through a furnace, a crucible. You take the impurities off the top and what is left is fine, pure gold. And that's how they describe the one-third that is left in Jerusalem. And then God will do great things. At that time, something amazing will happen. Chapter 14, as we finish up and see what happens with the story. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, 
And thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished. And half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations. And when he fought, as when he fought in the day of battle. All right. So Jerusalem in that very final day will be totally surrounded. Surrounded by enemies. And they will be laid siege to. We talked about that. And in that final, final day, half of the people will be taken away in captive. They'll get into their homes. They'll destroy their homes and rifle through their things, stealing things, taking things, destroying things, whatever they want. 50% of the population will be enslaved. The women will be raped. It'll be a terrible, terrible last time when Satan throws all of his rage at this city of Jerusalem and throws every evil thing he can. Do all the evil that you can. Open up the floodgates. Make it terrible for Jerusalem. And he says, and then it will stop because the Lord will come and fight. Now, often through the Bible it says the Lord will come and fight for these people. The Lord fights for these people. The Lord fights for these people. But on this day, Jesus shows up in person and big time he shows up. This is something like you've never seen. Verse number 4. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof towards the east and towards the west. And there shall be a very great valley. And half the mountain shall remove toward the north and half towards the south. So when Jesus shows up, the Mount of Olives, which is the famous uh, place course, uh, where he prayed on the Mount of Olives. He went up to pray often. He will stand, and this is the, the, the mountain that overlooks just on the edge of Jerusalem. He will stand on the edge of Jerusalem. He will stand on the Mount of Olives, and between his feet will begin a huge crack that will just smash the mountain into one huge valley. It will, the earth will shake and crack, and, and crack open and break wide open under his presence. Now this isn't like normally uh, where Jesus shows up and talks to a person. This is the final day. And this, you have now messed with his beloved. And he is done. He is over. He has come to battle. He has personally showed up to fight. And it's over very presence cracks it wide open and when he's there verse 7 and 8 but it shall be one day which shall not be known to the Lord the day nor night but it shall come to pass that at evening time it will be light and it shall be in that day that living water shall go out from Jerusalem half of them towards the former sea half of them towards the hinder sea in summer and in winter shall it be okay when Jesus shows up, no day, no night, 
And I think what this really means is Christ's presence will be so bright. It's said in heaven, when Jesus is there, God's throne shines. And there's no need of sun or moon. Because He brightens the whole place. He lights the whole place up. But when He shows down all this darkness that is happening in His beloved Jerusalem, all these evil things that are happening, He comes and cracks it wide open, stands here, breaks it all apart, and says, this is finished. And His light shines upon the darkness. This time, not in a small, quiet way, like when he first came to the city of Bethlehem in Judea, when he first came to that small country of Israel, he came in a quiet way to offer hope and opportunity to anyone who would have it. But when he comes this second time, the decisions are all made. It's all done. And he's here to battle. He's here to finish the fight. He's here to take out the evil, the darkness, the dirtiness, the nastiness. Wipe it out, scour it out, remove it all. He's finished. Time is up. God's patience has run to its end. He has very, very, very long patience indeed. Long mercy. He's long suffering, it says. But one day will be the end. And that's when he shows up. And when that happens, there's going to be a river that flows down through that valley. And that river is going to flow down through. And that day, he is going to wipe out. The battle of Armageddon happens. He is going to wipe out these enemies. They have no chance to live. They're going to be gone. The enemies will be gone. And that marks the beginning of a thousand-year kingdom. Something that we call the millennial reign or the millennial kingdom. Millennium means a thousand years. And it says that he will for a thousand years be king. And how do we know that? Well, verse number 9 it explains what it's going to be. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. And in that day shall there be one Lord and his name one. So he's going to wipe out the false prophets. He's going to take out all of the dirtiness, the nastiness, the evil, the darkness that has overwhelmed our world. And he is going to say, I'm in charge and I'm going to show you what it's like to run a world like this. Taking out the evil. During that time, he will lock away Satan for a thousand years. During that time, he will reign in peace on earth for a thousand years. King of all the earth. And this gives a picture of these things. So what's it going to be like? Well, first, what happens to Israel's enemies? Something very terrible. Verse number 12 and 13 of chapter 14. And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet. And their eyes shall consume away in their holes. And their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. And it shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them. And they shall lay it, hold every one of his hand on his neighbor. And his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. 
So the people that have been battling against the people in Jerusalem will all of a sudden have the greatest shock of their lives. While they are standing on their feet, it says their skin will melt, be eaten off their face. Their eyes will be eaten out of their heads. They will literally melt away off of their bones. Now we don't know exactly what this is, whether it's flesh-eating thing. People have surmised that this could be some sort of nuclear thing or some, who knows what it is. But the Lord uses it and it will, you can be sure that it will happen exactly as it has been described here. While they're standing on their feet. So it is almost instantaneous when this happens. Whether God just does something miraculously. He can do what He will. And He will do it. But this is what the fate of the enemies, as they are finished out and wiped out, will happen to them. And what happens to the rest of the people during the millennial kingdom, the millennial reign here on earth? Verse 16, it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to the feast of the tabernacles. So all of the earth now follows Jesus Christ. All of the earth goes to Jerusalem once a year. They are living in peace and harmony in other places. Then they go to Jerusalem once a year to worship God because he says, you come to me. And it says those who don't come to me will have droughts upon their home. But those who do come to me will be blessed. Because everyone on the earth will know that Christ is Lord. It will not be as we live today. God will be totally in charge. In this, this time frame, this thousand year reign. What else happens? Verse 20 and 21 of the chapter 14. And in that day there shall be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord. And the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be Holiness unto the Lord of hosts, and all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and see therein, and in that day there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Everybody and everything will acknowledge that God, He's Lord, He is the Lord of all. It says the horses will have bells on them. And yes, there'll be horses and animals, apparently, in this kingdom. And when we have them, they'll have bells on them. We'll put bells on them, and every bell will be written, Holiness unto the Lord. Everything will be done for God's glory. In this earth, nothing is done for God's glory. Very, very little. Many things are done for man's glory. For the glory of themselves. But everything will be done for God's glory, which will bring peace. No fighting. No weapons. We'll be living in such a way. Those who are there during that time frame. Okay? Those who survive that and turn these Jews that are one-third of them that turn, plus those peoples and the inhabitants of the other places in the earth, 
that, that turn to God through this last terrible time will be a part of that kingdom. They will know. They will be a part of the kingdom. And they will be saying, Holiness unto the Lord, holiness unto the Lord. That day will come, and that day will bring about an amazing change. Christ will be in charge. He describes this whole new realm, a whole new way to look at things in the very end. A realm of thinking in which everything is turned to God. And verses today where very little is ever turned to God and everything is turned away from God. We battle and we battle and we live in the consequences of it. And if, if we were to live in this millennial time, we'd see that everything is blessed because God is in everything, doing everything, and people acknowledge Him. And so you'll see great freedom, great blessings, great uh, things that are done. And it says here that in that day there shall be no more Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. From the day that the Jewish people were given the promised land and the day they walked up and the spies said, nope, we don't want to take it. There's, there's giants in there. And the day they wandered in the desert and finally Joshua came in and took the promised land and the day they left behind all of those Canaanites that they should have gotten rid of. When those days happened, Jerusalem and Judah and Israel had undergone stress, sufferings, problems, because it was the consequences of what they'd done. They left people that worshipped other gods there. The Canaanites worshipped other gods, and the Canaanites draw, drew away the people from, from Israel took them away from their God. And it says, no more in that land will there be any more of those Canaanites drawing people away from God. People will be drawn to God when they come to Jerusalem. Go and have a big tent festival once a year and we're going to draw people to God and not draw him away. So the time comes, the end time comes, it's an amazing change, though the great suffering intensifies near the end. We have an amazing change. God comes and sets his feet on the Mount, Mount of Olives and it splits wide open. And God says, now's the change. The river of flowing, the living waters flowing right from this place. I made this change. I brought these flowing waters, these living waters. I'm bringing salvation. I'm bringing forgiveness. I'm bringing all these things to Everyone here, they're going to enjoy this living water. Wide open. This is where it starts right from me. And so it's exciting. And we see the time as it creeps and creeps ever closer. We don't know exactly ever the day or time. But we know that things ever get closer. And we see more and more of the shadows of the things happening around the world. God's promises will come true. God's kingdom will come. He will come and He will stop the evil that is in this world. And He will reign. And once all that thousand years is over, He's going to remake the world and remake the heavens. And, and we will be in a paradise forevermore. So God will do amazing things. He has an amazing plan for you and me. 
Zechariah sees that vision and says, i got to tell you, it's terrible to, to see the end, but it's wonderful to see the whole thing come about in the conclusion. Think about those things and what God has for us and for you and for me. Thank you very much. Have a good evening. Thanks for tuning in.